Thanks, John, for the introduction and the their overwhelming load of support when it comes to the work of suffering. It is, it is not fun. It's not easy to talk about something, something like pain and suffering. So we're just going to jump right in it. The one thing I can promise you is no matter what happens in the next 20 minutes, nobody's walking away with a nice bow around this idea of pain and suffering. It's not like you're going to hit the car and be like, oh, woo, all right, here we go. We can, we, we've got it fixed. We've got the perfect scripture, the perfect prayer. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. So that's my one promise, is we navigate this idea of suffering and pain. There's not a fantastic result that's just going to be clear and present. Um, I have the opportunity as a part of Sherwood Oaks Christian Church staff uh, to go to hospitals and visit some of our people. Now, as a high school minister and being in, high, uh, being in student ministry for years and years and years and years, I don't often go to the high. Uh, I don't often go to hospitals because of high schoolers. I can count on one hand how many times, and it's either shop class, or should I say this? It's either shop class, <laughs> um, or it's car accidents. And I know, I know, those are crazy. Scary things, um, but I have never grown more in my faith now in the last like five, ten uh, years of a church expecting me like, yeah, I know you hang out with high schoolers, but you need to go visit some other people. Go hang out. And so well, I'm on a rotation and I have the opportunity to visit families. The vast majority of them I don't know because they're not high schoolers. Most of them are either parents of high schoolers or grands of, uh, uh, grandparents of high schoolers. And it leads to amazing stories, amazing time of just sitting and praying and getting to know people. So if I ever run into you and you don't have a high schooler, I'm sorry. It's probably at the hospital. Um, but there's some amazing experiences that happen. And because of HIPAA, I can't share you other people's stories, but I can share some of mine. Did you know there's a difference between labor and delivery? <laughs> yes, yes, there is. Thank you very much, people that don't want to teach me these things. When I was in my 20s, single, young, without kids, I, 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 you know, if you turn right, you turn left, doesn't really matter. You go to labor, you go to delivery, you go to mother, you go to baby, doesn't really matter. I have the opportunity to go in. Um, somebody just had a newborn baby, and, and I, was, I had a big smile on my face. I love kids, I love babies, and I, I'm thinking, this is going to be great. I can't wait. I just sit and learn about where the name came from. Did you name it after your grandpa? Or like, how, 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 um, how big is the baby? Did they have blue eyes and curly hair and all that kind of fun stuff? But when you open the door and you see what you see, life stops. It's horrific. Okay? Mother and baby, uh, I would say those departments are, one is like an amusement park, and one is like an amusement park on fire, right? Okay? So you get the baby experience just grosser. Anyway, so as, as a young adult, I learned the difference between mother and baby, and that really helped my faith grow. No, not real. I'm just being silly. But I have sat with countless people, and it's been going through devastating circumstances, we're talking things that if were happening to me, I would cry like a 10-year-old girl. I would suck my thumb, curl up in the corner, and beg God why. But attitudes and actions of, of fellow Christians, fellows, fellow believers of Christ, that basically, yes, I have staged something or other, and I don't think it's going to end well. But yet having that hope, having that peace of Jesus Christ. I have been in hospital rooms. I've been in nursing homes where someone had to explain to me, like, you're probably maybe the last person that's going to pray with her or him. And my heart is just destroyed. This world is painful. And there is so much that we look at and say, why? We would look at and say, why did this happen? 
Why me? Where was I? Why did it come my way? Listen, it is a life full of pain. I'm going to make an assumption, and I know you're not supposed to make assumptions, but it's a pretty clear, easy one, that all of us in here somewhere, somehow in the last few months has experienced something earth-shattering, painful, devastating, something that we would take a step back and say, why? Why in the world would this happen to me? This is not right. Um, the, uh, the, the, here's a few things that might be happening. Uh, maybe your marriage is not all that it was promised to be. Remember the day that you walked down the aisle and you, and you, you swore promises and, and there was this covenant and, and connection between you and your spouse and now you look back and say, where did that go? Where did the promise and potential go? Maybe you roll over and go, oh, that guy again. Maybe you're there. Maybe it's just the painful uh, reality that marriage is difficult and hard. Uh, maybe it's a loss of job or a change in career that has brought disaster. We no longer live in a culture or community that you can plug 45 years into McDonnell Douglas, get a little gold watch, and retire. Matter of fact, the last statistics I read is that as an adult from 18 to 68, we're going to change careers, not jobs, careers on average, average 11 times. How much anxiety does it come with? Moving constantly. We are in a hard world. What about the trajectory of your children that just might lead to heartache? How dare these small people make their own decisions in life? We obviously have the best intentions for them. How dare they grow up to be something, something cute and amazing and then start making decisions on their own that is not ours? How dare they be human beings with their own decisions? But to be honest, when we look at our kids sometimes, we think, oh, I really might be the only person that loves this person. It's okay. It's okay. They make their own decisions. Listen, there is lots of pain and frustration out there. Uh, now, we are in a series called Curious, and I, I love the fact that as a church with multiple campuses, we came together and said, hey, listen, ask a question. It could be serious. It could be um, deep as all deep can be when it comes to faith, or it could be just about anything. I remember one of the questions uh, was basically roughly, hey, do, are, are, are there animals in heaven? And I looked at the, the question, I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, scripturally, there's going to be this, that, and the other thing. And then I, my, my, my brain goes back to like, well, I mean, all dogs go to heaven, but I'm not a dog fan. I'm a cat fan. Do you think there's going to be cats in heaven? No, no, no. I'm even a cat fan. I know where they're going. It's going to be quite warm there. But that's okay. I understand that. There's, they're evil little creatures, and I love them dearly. Um, but in all honesty, um, the question came up more than a few times. This general idea of saying, why, if there is a God, does he allow pain and suffering? Christians and non-Christians, as a matter of fact, one of the most um, used questions to me, uh, either from my neighbors or my family that aren't uh, followers of Christ, or even high school students, looks at me and says, why wouldn't God do something about this? If there's a God, if he is powerful, why would he let us live in a painful life, a painful existence? Why is there so much suffering and pain? Uh, when pain happens, we want to know why and who's responsible. If you're anything like me, if something happens to me, I love pointing the finger. Well, it's, obviously it's not my fault. I'm an American. Anyway, but like somebody else had to have wronged me. And if I can't name a person or maybe even a system, I oftentimes look at God and say, why didn't you do something about it? We're family. How dare you? You ever been in those shoes? Have you been in that situation where you tend to blame God? other people, or even systems. Listen, misery transcends all class, race, culture, 
or privilege. It does not matter where you grew up. It does not matter how much money you have. It does not matter what you drove here in, what your house looks like. Rich, poor, royalty, or just John. We all find ourselves in pain and suffering. Um, suffering invites us to be radically human with, with one another. Sometimes, as human beings, we could have different political views, we can have different faith views, but our heart breaks for other people. Listen, I, I haven't been to Houston in two decades, three decades, but my heart breaks for what's happening down there. I don't have a single family member, but I know there are parents with little kids grabbing their kids and running for the hills. And that breaks my heart. I know that there are earthquakes and tornadoes and things happening on the other side of the world that I don't look like them, I don't think like them, I don't speak like them, but my heart breaks when I see other people suffering. Isn't it unfortunate that misery is one of those things that can actually bring us together? Um, now, suffering has many forms, and it cannot be boiled down into one root cause. Again, I'm not going to give you some miraculous prayer or piece of scripture that you can walk out and say, okay, check mark, got this, I know how to do it. But we are going to go through um, a story in scripture and try to figure out how we can live a life, a journey that interacts with suffering and pain and how we can view God in that. But first, here's a few ideas where suffering comes from. Number one, we suffer because it's self-inflicted pain. I know not eating vegetables for 40 years is going to catch up to me. Any day now, something's just going to fall off, and the doctor's going to be like, yeah, you should have ate green leafy vegetables. You probably should have done that. I realize that, right? This is my own self-inflicted pain. The choices that I make and say, donut, yes, broccoli, no, is going to catch up to me. I know better, but I continue to do it. Reckless choices that damage ourselves. Number two, we suffer because of the sin of others. Pain finds us because of others' actions. How Heart-wrenching, is it, when that junk driver takes away your kid or your mom? How horrific is it when somebody on the other side of the planet makes a decision and a war begins and it wraps hundreds of thousands of people into death? It is horrific that we live in a world that there are consequences for us because of other people's actions. But that's what the reality is. We make decisions that hurt us. We also make decisions that hurt others. Uh, number three, we suffer because this world is broken. Natural disasters, a disease, even aging. Guys, I grow a beard once a year just to remind myself I don't look good in the beard. Every time I do it, there's more gray. That's basically my body's just lazy and giving up. It's like I'm done. I'm out. There's no more. You're 40. It's downhill. There is nothing I can do to combat aging. This is a broken world where sin has entered and messed up the entire plan. We can be angry about it, or we can deal with it gracefully. But to be honest, we suffer because of disease, aging. And the last one is we suffer because there's an enemy. If you're new to churches, if this is your first time, I'm going to apologize because this is going to sound really weird, but we know this is truth. We believe in a God that created this world to have family, and we also believe in an enemy that wants to do everything in his power to get back and destroy God and his creation. It is difficult to understand this, but you and I live in a world where there is somebody actively trying to hurt God and his creation. We will suffer and have pain because Satan is out to destroy us, period. And that is a hard concept to get over. 
Now, through the story of Lazarus, we can find meaningful truths about how we can navigate a life that's full of suffering and pain. So if you'd like to, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 11. You can get your tablets out, your phones out, or you can totally cheat, and it'll probably be behind me on the big screen, which is totally fine. But we're going to walk through uh, Lazarus. Now, when you think of Lazarus, my first thought is like, man, the kid story where Lazarus was dead and Jesus showed up and now Lazarus is alive. That's awesome. Everybody's like, sweet. But to be real honest, if we start looking at the finite details of Lazarus, you and I might get very irritated at God, very angry at the details behind why Lazarus is in this position. So we're going to look at this and try to navigate sin or try to navigate uh, pain and suffering. Here we go. John 11, 1 through 6. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He's from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, uh, whose brother Lazarus was, uh, now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Here we go. We've got a great connection. We know that there is some kind of friendship. There is some kind of connection that goes above and beyond just the normal we've met each other, right? Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, stared, he stayed there where he was for two more days. Okay, there's some things in here that already irritate me, and I, I got a vent. I've got the microphone, so I guess I can vent. Listen, Jesus has some kind of connection, right? He has history with these two sisters and Lazarus. Now, we know that this, uh, the two women are, are sisters because uh, Scripture clearly points it out. We're not 100% sure if, if Lazarus um, is connected family or personal friend. I, I just assume they're all brothers and sisters in a big, giant family, right? Um, we see through Scripture before this that Jesus interacts with this family um, pretty much a lot, like, it might be his ministry hub anytime he goes to Jerusalem. They live right outside of Jerusalem. And so anytime he's in Jerusalem um, preaching and speaking the good news, he's probably staying with his family. There is a great connection. There is a great connection. And if you would think, oh, man, one of my best friends is Jesus. Hold on. There's got to be some kind of benefits besides water and wine, right? There's got to be something, okay? So Mary and Martha send word and said, hey, listen. Lazarus is sick. You should do something about it. Jesus explains, oh, this sickness will not lead in death. It's, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then he reacts in a way that you and I would look at and say, is he really a good friend? Because what does he say? He stays for an extra couple days. Instead of rushing to his friend, instead of rushing to these people that he's in love with, that he spent time with before, he basically drags his heels and doesn't leave. He doesn't even start the march back. He says, I'm going to stay here a few more days because this is going to bring honor to God. This hurts my heart. This makes me take a very painful view at the intentions of Jesus. His good friend is sick, and you know what he says? I'm going to use this to bring glory to the Father instead of helping my friend in the short term. Well, let's continue. Now, there was conf uh, confusion with his followers, the disciples. They were trying to figure out, wait a minute, okay, so the this isn't going to lead in his death. Is he just going to be sick for a while? How is, how is this working? And I, I love how Jesus is blatant in this one. So in John 11, 14 and 15, it says this. So, they told, so Jesus, told him, uh, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for the sake, for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may, have, uh, so that you may believe. 
but let us go to him. So days after the fact, he starts the long trip. Healing Lazarus would surely bring praise to Jesus as a healer. His disciples have seen Jesus do amazing things, miracles, things that you and I would look at and say, that's not possible. These men and women that were following Jesus looked at him and said, well, all you got to do is like walk that direction for a few days and you can heal him. We've seen you heal people before. We've seen you heal people that believe in you. We've seen you heal people that hate you. We've seen you do things that is so remarkable that we still don't get or understand it. What is happening? And Jesus explains to them, listen, Lazarus is dead and he's dead for a reason. My friend is dead and he's dead for a reason. And I am glad so that when I get there, you'll have a better understanding of faith. You'll have a better understanding of hope you will have a better understanding of how the system works. And this hurts my heart. <laughs> so we move on. Uh, John eleven twenty one through 27 says this. Lord, Martha said, so he finally gets to the town. Martha uh, runs up to Jesus. Martha said to Jesus, if you have been there, my brother would not have died. She points at, his, at her friend I can see this. I, I, I don't think this was a whimper. I don't think she was on her knees and saying, oh, if you're here, I think she, through her grief, is screaming at Christ. If you were here, my Lazarus would be alive. Why did you allow this? Why did you do this? But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus answered her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise in the uh, resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Here's her response. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is to come in this world. She blames Jesus. She has seen Jesus heal other people, probably in a worse state than Lazarus. And she just through her grief and her frustration, gets it all out. Just barfs all these horrific feelings of grief onto Jesus. And Jesus says this, listen, if you believe, if you see that I'm not just a good healer, that I'm not just a good man, that I'm not just a moral champion, if I'm not just a good rabbi, you'll see who I truly am, that I am the resurrection and the life. I have power over sin. I have power over death. I am the Messiah. Her response is what Jesus was aiming for. The three things she talks about is basically the exact same thing Paul sa or Peter says in his good confession. She says, Jesus Christ is God's salvation plan for creation. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You will bring a right relationship between God and his people. Number two, she says, Jesus is the son of God, God in flesh. That he wasn't just a prophet, that he wasn't just a good person uh, preaching God's word, but he was actually God in flesh walking among them. And the last one, that you are uh, the son of God, and that you are not just some future event, you are happening right now, right here, and I need to pay attention. Jesus does this entire situation of pain and suffering for her and the people around her to see that they are more or that he is more than just a good healer. Her response amazed him. John eleven thirty two 32 to 36 says this, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, her sister, and saw him, she also uh, fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in the spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. 
Jesus wept. When the Jews said, uh, then the Jews said, see how he loves them. Jesus was moved to tears for both the pain that he felt for Lazarus, but also the grief that his friends were living through. He was moved to tears. He was not just come some sort of stoic, perfect person saying, oh, that's, that's a shame. I'm sorry for you. He was moved to tears to the point where the people that were with uh, Mary, the, uh, these Jews, that normally whenever Jews and Jesus hang out with each other, the Jews are trying to either kill him or discredit him. Do we don't see any of that. Matter of fact, we see Jews giving Jesus a compliment. The enemy of Jesus Christ, because he is moved so emotionally for his friend, his enemies look at him and say, I have compassion for Jesus. I don't believe what he's doing. I think he's making a mockery of the Jewish religion. But they connect with him through misery. Again, two different people groups coming together because of pain. They saw through his tears. They didn't discredit him. They didn't try to kill him. They basically said, gosh, look how much he's loved them. It was a compliment. That's crazy. Um, they see Jesus through the eyes of pain and can relate with his tears. So let's see how this turns out. This is the, the payoff pitch where everybody says, oh, Lazarus, that's great. John eleven thirty nine through 44 says this, take away the stone, he said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead men, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, didn't I tell you if we believe, you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you would always hear me, but I say this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. Hands and feet still wrapped with strips of linen, cloth around his face, Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This was a miracle. There was no discussion if Lazarus was dead or alive. He was dead four days in a desert situation. People knew that Lazarus was dead. There was no confusion, oh, maybe he's in a coma, or maybe he's just taking a really long nap. No, we for sure know that the culture would look at him and say, yes, Lazarus is dead. He walks up. He doesn't even walk into the grave. He doesn't even walk into the tomb and says, hey, come on, Lazarus, give me your hand. He commands, he says, Lazarus, get up and come out. I have the power over sin and death. I am the resurrection and the life. I need these people to see you stand up so they recognize me as the son of God. So through all of this pain of this family, through all of the frustrations, through all of the suffering and the days and days uh, of looking for Jesus to come around the corner and do something about their brother. All of this comes to fruition and basically Jesus uses pain and suffering to get the attention of the people around them to let them know that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. He has the power over life and death. This is a difficult thing to read. Because I would love for our Bible to say, oh, God loves you and he's going to take care of you. Health, wealth, you're going to have lots of great stuff. It's going to be fantastic. But in all honesty, when we read our scripture, our life is not about us. We are not the main character in our story. Jesus is. We have a fantastic uh, part of that story. We are loved beyond measure in that story. But he uses us so that people can understand that he is God and there is hope and salvation only through him. 
This, uh, this event took place for all to know that Jesus had the power over life and death. Not just a teacher, not just a healer, not just a moral leader, but God himself. We need to put our hope and faith in the one that has the power over life and death. So as we wrap this up, here's my, here's not my little bow that wraps this up, because there's not a little bow. But what I can say is in this situation, we know that God told Jesus not to intervene, but to let Lazarus die. Not because he hates us, not because he wants us to suffer, but simply to point the way that he is the king. He is our Lord. In our sufferings, we don't always know the answer to why, but we do know that God is with us in our suffering and can use that pain to bring glory to himself. That is difficult. Grief cannot be sidestepped or explained away. Suffering comes in many forms, unmet expectation, failed situations, or even the physical death of someone. I cannot just say a magic word and have this move on. But what I can say is give you this. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have a hope in Jesus Christ. So when the eye of the hurricane is right over us, we can look and say, you know what, this suffering and pain, I didn't deserve this. Or we can raise our heads to Jesus Christ and say, I can have a hope only in you. We have little control in this life, but we know the one that controls life and death. We have been promised that his love will transcend all of life's calamities. Our hope is found in a God that will not let us down in the end. And number two, the first thing we can do is find hope in Christ. The second thing we do is understand that God has set up a family to be agents of love and grace. If you're anything like me, me, sometimes I'm overly male, and if I'm suffering, if there's pain in my life, I sometimes retreat and say, you know what, I don't need to burden other people with this. Whatever garbage is happening in my life, if I've done it, if somebody's done it against me, or whatever the system is, sometimes I say, you know what, I don't need to put that on somebody else's shoulders. But literally, God has created the family structure. Our family here, we have different last names, but we follow after one God. Let us grieve together. If you see a friend, if you see somebody that has absolutely been tsunamied over because of grief and pain in their life, run toward that mess. Sometimes as human beings, we look at something and say, oh, that's messy. I don't want to get dirty. I'm going to get emotionally attached to it. I'm going to stay away. Guys, I want to encourage you, the best thing that you and I can do for the family of God is chase after the mess, run toward the mess, and love people. So the number one thing I can say is that we have a hope in Christ. And the number two I can say is that we have a family. And we need to lean on this family because this life is hard, it is painful, it is unpredictable. As we move into a time of communion, we have the opportunity to remember Jesus Christ. And we can remember that he himself lived a life that was nothing but suffering and pain. He was mocked, he was ridiculed. He was beaten and he was placed on a tree and died because he loves us. I know that sounds ridiculous, but for some strange reason, he just loves us. No matter what our past is, no matter what our present is, no matter what sin is in our life, he loves us beyond measure. And we can take a time now. We can come forward. We've got uh, tables in the back as well to remember his life that was full of pain and suffering so that we can have the same hope that others have for thousands of years in front of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we beg you to give us strength and comfort as we walk through this painful life as we are devastated by loved ones that we can't solve their problems, we can't save them from whatever disasters have fallen upon them, we beg, Father, that you would. 
that you would wrap your arms around the people that we know and love and be an agent of change. We know that you make broken things new again. We know that you will never, ever leave us, even when we are in a situation of anger and frustration. So Father, as we take this time of communion, help us be reminded that Jesus is the main story. He is our King and Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.